<laughs> Hello, simpletons. That's uh, Pete. That's who we call. That's what we call our. I like that you looked at me very like like smiling when you said that straight at me. So I thought that was for <laughs> me only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said it. I said it. You know, plural in case uh, you yeah. have you know multiple identities going on Thank inside you. there, yeah. which don't we all? Don't we all? Yes. Uh, the the person we want to be, the person we pretend to be, the person we think we are. Yeah. Anyway, we're here with Peter Rollins today. He has a great podcast called The Fundamentalist, but he also has a Patreon. So patrons, he's one of those creators who actually contributes to his Patreon, oh, yeah. like us, where where he provides so much more value than the few dollars you throw him a month. And so um, we'll put a link to his Patreon in the show notes. Ryan's not here today. He has a children's cold. So it's just Pete and I. We're talking about the signifiers of suffering and despair. We got a bunch of surprise questions as well. But since we're talking about suffering today, Pete, I thought we'd start with an article and we can disagree with it, or maybe we'll actually end up agreeing with it. Who knows? But it's written by, well, it's written in Psychology Today, and it's called Strategies to Avoid Absorbing the World's Suffering. The subtitle is, It's Not Your Job to Take on the World's Pain. So I figured we could be like, I think, what is it, 44% of people comment on a Facebook post without actually reading reading nothing but the title. Okay, yeah. yeah. So let's start there. Let's read the title. <laughs> yeah. And and this presupposes we want to avoid suffering. Mm. Yeah. And there's, of course, a part of us that does. In fact, we're constantly running away from suffering through consumer purchases, through religion, through um, relationship consumerism, through calendar consumerism. If I just become busier, I won't suffer, yeah. right? If I do the right things in the right sequence with the right ingredients, I won't suffer. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't ever seem to work with us. Yes. So let's start by talking about suffering and how it actually, we might not want to avoid suffering. Yes, yes. No, I'm in that psychology. I'm, yeah, I could say a lot about my, my questions with psychology and Psychology Today magazine. Um, yeah, if you allow me, I don't want to, we've got plenty of time, don't we? We've got can all choose. the time. We've got all the time, okay. Yes. Well, very briefly, I want to, so Lacan um, once wrote this, or he did a sem a year-long seminar on uh what was called the analyst discourse. And basically what, what Lacan was doing is he, he was saying like, there's a very weird way of speaking when you're in analysis and it's different from in a university and it's different from in work and it's different with friends. When you're communicating with a psychoanalyst, you are discoursing, you're communicating, but it's a very strange form of communication. And what he did in the seminar was he partly outlined what that type of discourse is. And he distinguished it from three others. So he, he talked about what was called the master's discourse, the university discourse, then there's the analyst discourse and the hysterics discourse. So these are four discourses. And basically what he said is the master's discourse is a discourse that tells you what you should do, right? It gives you demands. It's a master's discourse. That's what you get in work. You, the boss tells you what to do, you have to do it. Mm -hmm. um, or in religion, if, if the church tells you what God thinks, and you, you know, you have to do it. So that's a master's discourse. And you get therapy like that sometimes. Someone yes. goes to a counselor and the counselor says, you should break up with that person. <laughs> or, you know, so it's almost like you need a, you want a benevolent dictator. You want a, a paternal figure to tell you what to do. And hey, at times we all want that, right? But that's the master's discourse. And then there's, he calls it the university discourse. The university discourse gives you advice. 
tells you, you know, you know what you, who you should vote for, what you should do, or how you should handle something, right? So it's advice giving, right? Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of us want advice. We want to uh, advocate our responsibilities, get advice. The funny thing is, by the way, we often get advice. You can tell what you want to hear by who you ask advice for. So, if it, you, you, so it's very. Sart once said. Um, you know, if someone comes to me for advice, the first thing I say is, well, what do you think I would say? Because you're coming to me for advice and you already know who I am. So that's probably what you want to hear. Like, So take responsibility for it. Um, but you want to jump in? So, well, oh, yeah. Between the two, so you, oh, yeah. the masters versus the university, what we're talking about here essentially is you must do this versus you should do this. Yes. Uh, in a way. So you're, you're in, in both instances, you're going there for quote unquote advice. Yeah. But the one is they're telling you they're they're dictatorial and this is the way it must be. The other one is I guess there's a slightly more agency in the university side of things, but we're still well, looking. They're giving you reasons. They're giving you reasons for doing it. So the okay. first is just you should do it, and the yeah. second is oh here's ten tips for how to do it. So it's kind of like it's advice giving. It's prescriptive. Um, prescriptive, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the funny thing is, Lacan says that behind the university is always the master. So whenever someone's telling you you know, what you should do or not do. Usually behind it is, is some authority figure, right? So there's the, there's, but in therapy, sometimes, you know, you go to a therapist and they give you advice. But Lacan says that in analysis, something different happens, which is technically the analyst is not a master and they're not a, a professor, they're not a university. They are a mirror that helps you encounter yourself and encounter your own suffering and your own doubts and your own unknowing. So what I do if I was an analyst is you come to me and through the conversation, you come to see yourself. So I become this weird mirror, but the mirror that 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 helps you confront your suffering. So the, the reason why I'm mentioning this in relation to the article is as soon as I hear shoulds and should nots, I'm like uh-huh. they just don't work. What what happens is we're already suffering. And, and the, the rule is to kind of like figure out why and to become cognizant of our own selves yeah. uh, rather than having 10 tips for you know how to overcome suffering or what to do. Those things, tips work really well in a technical or yeah. mechanical sense. Yeah. Like we were here last night hanging up these lights and repositioning them. And so sometimes you need an instruction manual to figure out how do I do something mechanical, yes. right? Yeah. But when we're talking about the interior life of a human being and suffering, these how-tos often get us farther away from what one might call the truth. Yes, yes. And the other thing you brought up, which I think is brilliant, is we often presuppose that suffering is something we can completely get rid of. So yes. if we if we kind of say there's two types of suffering, there's the suffering that happens in our lives and there's the suffering that is life. So there's mm-hmm. the trauma, the traumas that happen to us and there's the trauma that is us, right? To be human is to is to be traumatized by 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 life, um, then there are definitely things that we can do with our lives to minimize the sufferings, right? To kind of make our lives better. But we'll never get rid of the suffering that is life itself. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much fear, you know, there's a certain trauma that is part of being human. Now, in psychoanalysis, the clever thing is that they say that not only, this is not just a necessary evil. Right. It's not a necessary evil. There's just there's something inherently about trauma that's part of being human. It's like, well, no, that's also where the the life is. Because the the reason why something means something is because of sacrifice. If if there is no sacrifice, no nothing that you had to struggle for, no trauma, 
you would also have no meaning, no value. Like, mm-hmm. so weirdly, there's a certain amount of struggle and trauma and a surf- certain amount of healthy suffering that is part of existence. Even when I buy Christmas presents, it's a sacrifice of my money if I spend a lot of money, right? And it's the sacrifice that makes it meaningful. Or you go to a pub and you buy a round of drinks. The reason why we have a gift economy is, so an economy is always, you give something and get something in return. Yeah. A gift is a sacrifice, i.e. you give something with for nothing in return. Mm-hmm. And without gift, there is no meaning. Gift is inherently connected to meaning, um, which is a sacrifice is inherently connected to a sense of wonderment and enjoyment. So again, for me, the cure, let's call it the cure for a second, is is not to get rid of suffering because you can do that by taking loads of drugs, right? You can kind of like completely minimize your anxiety through drugs, for example, Mm -hmm. but is rather to find a way to, to make space for that anxiety, to to find a way of healthily bringing it into your life. And so yeah. that for me is like the, any any therapy that's trying to get rid of suffering is just off on the wrong track. Right. And so you, when you say bring it into your life, you're saying it's already it's there. Already it's there. uncovering <laughs> it, it's right? Uncovering it, yeah. And it's not seeking out more suffering. I think that's mm-hmm. where we, we often go wrong. People will think like, oh, so if the antidote is not to avoid suffering, it is then to seek it out. No, yeah. no, no, you don't have to seek it out. It's already there. <laughs> you can find it. Just like happiness is already there. Yes. It makes us miserable when we seek it, but it can be uncovered. Yes. The peace, the tranquility, the calm, the order, whatever you want to call it, is already there. But yes. so is the suffering. That's why this university approach, as you called it, there are literally tips and mm. what to do, it's sort of self-care for sensitive people, it says. And I don't mean to minimize these these things necessarily, but I will say that while they work, they work only as byproducts of a deeper understanding. You can do these one, two, three, four, five, six things and if they actually worked, then everyone would be doing them and no one would be suffering. Yes. Well, that, that's the key. It's like the reason why I'm not a big fan of this advice is because if you're a healthy person, you're not going to put yourself in unhealthy situations. But if you are doing that, then I want to figure out why you're doing it. Not give you tips for how not to because you're getting something out of it. Like there's this is the, the difficult question in analysis that's beautiful is sometimes if you go to analysis and a person, you say, this is, I've got these terrible friendships. My kids are always taking, taking, taking and whatever, right? And then the analyst says, so what are you getting out of it? I said, what do you mean I'm getting, what am I getting out of it? I hate it. And I go like, well, you're, you're in it. And, you know, you've mentioned three terrible relationships in a row. It's almost like you only desire people who are bad for you, right? So your desire is, like, why can I not go out with somebody who's not horrible? Maybe because you don't desire them. Now, this yeah. is called jouissance. Jouissance is, a, jouissance is this beautiful thing where it's an unenjoyable enjoyment. It's a painful pleasure. It's where we uh, enjoy something that we hate. So, for example, like... Um, going on to Twitter to to read people that we dislike. And it gets us annoyed, but we enjoy it, right? There's an enjoyment yes. in the in the pain. There's a pleasure in the pain. And right. psychoanalysis is always trying to discover our jouissance so that we can begin to understand that some some of the things that we hate, we're drawn to and we desire and to and to just start to unpick that. You know? <laughs> we call it hate watching sometimes, yes. right? Yes. And so we pretend as though we we hate the thing, but it actually brings us some sort of level of enjoyment or entertainment or whatever. Yeah. 
A friend of mine called it annoyment, which I really like. Annoyment is the enjoyment oh. of, it, <laughs> of it being annoyed. <laughs> oh, that's great. Let's talk about signifiers. Yeah. Um, because quite often we're talking about a thing. It's not the thing that we're talking about. Mm. So can you tell me what a signifier is? Oh, yeah. So, I heard a discourse you did on this recently. And, and so I thought maybe we'd unpack it here and I'll throw some examples at you. Yeah. So, yeah. So a signifier, this is very, very key in philosophy. It's like language is what's called signification. And all signify means, sometimes it looks very complicated, but all it means is something stands in for something else. So, and, and if you think of language like a dictionary, every word points to another word, which points to another word and meaning arises out of signification, out of this movement. So, and to be human is to live in a world of significations. Yes. Um, now, by the way, if, if someone's suffering from psychosis, it's slightly different. But for most of us, um, anything that we do is say, even if I go out and buy a pair of jeans, I may just think I'm buying a regular pair of jeans, but uh -huh. but there's a signification to that. And even if it's I'm just buying a regular pair of jeans, it's because maybe I want to be seen as a regular person who doesn't like to buy fancy jeans, right? It signifies something. So everything we're doing is signification. And so what is interesting is when you start to take note of that in our lives and the lives of other people, they start. everyone's telling the truth. Everyone's telling the truth because every, everyone's actions are signifying something. And, and quite often, we the things that, we use the signifiers because we want significance, mm. right? They they end up not delivering on the promise. Yeah. Yeah. This happens especially in, in consumerism, right? We were talking during the minimal episode about Fight Club and I brought some of the quotes from from there about it's sort of, you know, we think about Fight Club as this film about fighting, but it's not really that. I mean, it, it's it's a film about philosophy, about a deeper understanding, but it's also about anti-consumerism. The irony of it is like the fight club itself ends up becoming this sort of capitalist consumer the hierarchy structure, whatever it is. There are all kinds of sort of, sort of hidden ironies there. So um, one of the quotes from, from the film is, we're consumers. We are the byproducts of lifestyle obsession, murder, crime, poverty. These things don't concern me. What concerns me are celebrity magazines, television with 500 channels, some guy's name on my underwear, Rogaine, Viagra, Olestra, Fuck Martha Stewart. <laughs> Martha's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's all going down, man. She, um, or, or this is a Tyler Durden's character here. And what's fascinating about him and, and, and this point of view is it's almost recognizing these signifiers are often the source of our suffering. Mm -hmm. And so, I thought we would talk a bit more about what are some signifiers that lead to suffering in our culture? Yeah, that's a good question. And in a way, the reason why no product ever satisfies is because of signification. It's like when you buy the car and you think you're going to be satisfied by the car or by the new iPhone, um, it, it, what you're trying to do is you're trying to stop signification. You're trying to stop desire. It's like I... I I desire an object and then I get the object and I stop up the desire because I now have the thing. I don't have a signifier. I, I have the thing, but it never is the thing. So mm. signification keeps going. Um, a way to describe it, and again, it sounds very weird at first, but it's that, well, 
first of all, well, two things is a desire is a sense of not having, right? And we think we want to stop up desire, but actually we want desire. Desire is desirable. (laughs) So um, you wouldn't even want to stop up your desire. If If you were able to get the thing, the car or the iPhone that worked, it's not depressing because it doesn't work. It would be even more depressing if it did work because you would you would des- stop desiring and it would be like, that would be a type of death as well. Yeah. Um, the question is, how do we desire desire? How do we enjoy our desire? And how do we enjoy signification? So can I say something like, this is weird psychoanalysis for a second. <laughs> um, but if you imagine the first desirable object for the child is the other, the mother other, right? So in a, you know, the, the, the mother-child unity. Mm-hmm. Now, the crazy thing is the child doesn't desire the mother at first uh, because the child is the mother. The child is part of the mother. They're, they're part of the mother's body. They come right. out of the mother. And so even when they're born very early on, there's no distinction. You can't talk about the mother without the infant or the infant without the mother there. One. And then what happens is something comes in, it's called the new. Something comes in and it, it kind of splits. It, it brings a little bit of differentiation, right? Yeah. And then desire comes in because then the child desires the mother, right? Now there's desire. Um, but uh, the the child can't have the mother. This is called the incest taboo in psychoanalysis. Is you actually can't you can't return to the mother's womb, right? You're stuck. Now you're in the world of division, right? You're you're there's no going back, right? And but what you learn, what the child learns is I can't have the mother, but I can have a blanket, a transitional object that is kind of like the mother, mm-hmm. or I can have a teddy bear. And, and so the child learns to desire things that are almost like signifiers of the mother. Yeah. Um, now, a few things can go wrong, <laughs> uh, but um, this this then starts a signifying chain where the child starts desiring things, and et cetera, et cetera. But they're deep down, there's still a desire for the oceanic oneness, right? Mm. So there's a feeling of, of of loss. But if you ever got that, that would be that would be terrible. So what a child has to learn is, and by the way, you'll notice children, infants love a game that Freud called Fort Da, which is where maybe they'll push food off the table and then yes. it gets put back on. Push uh-huh. it away, it gets put back on. So children, it's the first, the most primitive game of all, which is away and back, away and back. And what you'll notice is the child gets joy from pushing away and from return, right? And you can tell that like the first Fort Da game is the mother who leaves and returns, who leaves and returns. But the child, the child gets the pleasure from both the withdrawal and the return. And actually, if there was no withdrawal, there'd be no enjoyment in the return, right? If so, if there was no differentiation, there'd be no enjoyment. So the child is already learning that desire and pleasure is in having and not having, having and not having, having and not having. And we have to continue to remember the Fort Dagg game as we get older is that it's not the presence of the thing that will make you happy or it's complete departure. It's somehow enjoying the dissatisfaction of life itself. But it's not prescribing deprivation necessarily. It's appreciating the deprivation or the lack, uh, yeah. it, because we are, yeah, I noticed this as well. My wife and I spend half of our time apart. So mm-hmm. literally like 
two separate residences and, yeah. and and the but one of the reasons we do that is exactly what you're talking about it's here. because you can't stand you <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons we do this is because you cannot cope with me <laughs> I, you know, I, I know you're saying that in jest but i think it would be true for both of yeah. us if we were together full time mm-hmm. and we're extreme introverts and i'm sure there's all, all kinds of backstory on that but but you're playing if, the fort dagium yes you're both playing the fort dagium that's exactly yeah. it and and so it is the not having that creates the desire. Mm-hmm. And if we were together 24 hours a day, now this is different for other people. If Ryan were here, you know, he and Mariah are virtually inseparable. They do spend time apart, but it's like two hours apart. And that's their version of that same game. Yeah. Yes. And, and so I find it infinitely interesting that we want to, we, we can even know this sort of intellectually. Mm-hmm but then still want to bridge the gap. Yes. We yes. don't understand it sort of viscerally. Yes. And when we don't, that ends up, it's what makes us miserable. We blame it on something else. Yeah. If the mother stays there all the time, there's no room for desire. If my wife is there by my side 24 hours a day, there's no room for desire. If you get all the material possessions you've ever wanted, we talked about this on a previous episode of The Minimalist, that's not heaven, that's hell. Yes, yes. I mean, that's why horror horror movies can often be seen as the primordial over-proximity of the maternal presence. So you've got like the alien and aliens. But... um, is some over proximity of this presence that you can't get distance from. So sometimes people think, oh, the 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 painful thing is separation from your your parents. But no, it's even worse if you don't get separation. You know, that's psychosis. Psychosis is where the separation uh, has not happened at a deep enough level, and it's it's traumatic at times. You know. Oh wow. Um, so. Let's talk about that trauma. Um, so so there are a lot of things that traumatize us. We use that term yeah, rather flippantly now, right? We stub our toe and, and we're traumatized or we're depressed just because we have a stubbed toe. That's not what we're talking about here. But it doesn't have to be a physical trauma. That, that can be traumatizing for sure. You get into a car accident and become disfigured. That can be traumatizing or it can also be this amazing awakening event. And it seems to me that there's a correlation between our trauma and our sort of awakening. Yes, yes. At a very primitive level, that there's something connected with trauma and becoming a subject. Is that yes. what you mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because that's where, like, there is something. That's what I mean by the trauma that is life itself. Is that there is something? It's it's like it's almost like you can't you can't have birth without pain or whatever, but you can't become a subject without loss because the subject is loss. The subject is not like, oh, I had some perfection and then I lost it. It's that, no, you arose precisely at the moment of loss itself. So we are marked by lack. That's That would be the psychology. And by the way, there's a religious term for this, which I love, which is original sin. I love this. I, and I, it's funny because yeah. it's so unpopular, but I understand because of its religious connotations. But all it means is um, an originary lack. Now, it doesn't mean that in confessional Christianity, but it's the er, in in scholastic thinking, there was this notion of, oh, there is an originary lack. I can lose something that I once had, but this is a loss of something you never had that Mm. marks us. And then the problem is we feel that we're always trying to fill that lack. We're always trying to, to, um, to put something in it, right? When the trick is to rob the lack of its sting. So an example I would use is 
if you um, owe lots of money to the bank and they're, they're chasing you with letters and all of that, that is a lack, a lack of money, a debt, right? You owe this thing. There's a, there's a nothingness that's giving you heart disease, stress, you're drinking too much, right? It's, it's this nothingness that is something, this lack of money that you have to pay back. In bankruptcy, um, the, the debt isn't paid. The debt is forgiven. And to forgive a debt means to render the nothingness that is something into a nothingness that is nothing. So in in forgiveness <laughs> of debt, the nothingness isn't taken away, but the nothingness is rendered nothing. The debt is robbed of its sting. And so for me, we, we're marked by this this lack and we think we want to get rid of it by paying it by filling it with cars and people and sex and drugs and we want to fill it we want to fill it when what we really want is forgiveness we want to experience that 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 lack becoming being robbed of its sting yeah yeah it's it's fascinating you use this analogy that really hit me on your podcast recently which by the way check out his podcast it's called the fundamentalists we'll put a link to it in the show notes but um going in and ordering coffee without milk. Oh yes. yes. Let's, uh, if you don't mind retelling that yeah, here. Absolutely. Because I I've noticed this with my wife and I recently. We uh you know, we're both ordering the coffee without milk, so to speak, at least metaphorically. So can yeah. you can you uh Yeah, unpack that. Yeah. yeah, so this is um Slavio Shizek, a philosopher. He quotes this movie. I forget what the movie is, but a guy goes into a coffee shop and says, Could I have coffee without cream or coffee without milk. And the guy says, I'm sorry, we don't have any milk. We only have cream. Would you have coffee without cream? Right? So that was the, that's the little <laughs> joke in the movie. Um, and what, what Shizek says, which is the very psychoanalytic idea, is that this sounds the same. Like uh, you go like coffee without cream and coffee without milk. Well, they're exactly the same. But um, Shizek says, no, they're not. No. They're very, very different. Absolutely. Yeah. And he uses the example in analysis where, or well, here's an example I would use. Two people who have had the same basic life experiences. They're both pretty much the same. Same things have happened to them. But one of them is obsessed and fixated on a relationship that never worked, that didn't happen, that could have been. Right? They're fixated on that. And the other person, maybe they're, they're really caught up in uh, not taking a job they should have taken and where that would have gone. Now, they're both uh, exactly the same in terms of what's happened in their world. But in this counterfactual world that's never happened, they are fixated on different things. And those different things have an impact in their life. So one's coffee without milk, one's coffee without cream. But those two worlds that don't exist, that didn't happen, impact their lives in different ways and impact their lives in very fundamental ways. I mean, that's why in psychoanalysis, someone like, there's a beautiful book called, I think it's called Fear of Missing Out. Um, by uh, Adam, it's not Adam Phillips. No, I think it is Adam Phillips. Or uh, yeah, uh, but he talks about we live between who we are and who we'd like to be. So in other words, and what we have and what we'd like to have. So in other words, the world that doesn't exist impacts our world. The the, the what what we don't have and what we um, missed out on can sometimes be so devastating to us can actually have such an impact in the life that we live. And this is where weirdly, sometimes we have to realize that not only is life not perfect, the life we're living, but that other world of fantasy world 
it also wouldn't be perfect either. Mm -hmm. So we almost have to become nihilist, not just in our actual world, but in our counterfactual world. <laughs> we, have uh. to, we have to become nihilist in philosophy in every possible world. And once we become, because, oh yeah, cause this is very important, this is very good, is that, <laughs> is that most people, so many people I know, like again, it's like, let's take tarot or something like that, you know, people who, who do tarot and then they go, uh, I go, do you believe in it? And they go, no, I don't believe in it. And you go like, but you're still going, right? So Niels Bohr has this great analogy. It's uh, all with tarot cards. Tarot cards, yeah. So, yeah. so it's that way, you don't believe it, but you still do it. So you believe in the other's belief. And the, the way this works is Niels Bohr once had a horseshoe over his house. And one of his guests said, oh, you've got a horseshoe over your house. Why have you got that? Now in Europe, it's a sign of like, I think, you know, good luck and good fortune and keeping the demons away. And the guy goes like, you're not a superstitious man. Like, why do you have the horseshoe? And he says, of course, I'm not superstitious. Of course, I'm not, I'm a scientist. And then the guy says, well, why have you got it? And Bohr says, well, I've heard it works even if you don't believe in it, right? <laughs> so that, that's, that's, that's the way we believe today is in a disavowed way. Our beliefs aren't in our minds. We're all enlightened, clever people, but our beliefs are, are, are in some other world. In other yeah. words, like in the advertisements, for example. So there's that joke that Shizek tells a lot, but he says, a man goes to a psychoanalyst because he thinks he's seed. He literally thinks he's seed on the ground. And after a year of psychoanalysis, he realizes he's not seed, he's a human being, right? And he's like, I was so stupid. He goes away. And then about three weeks later, he's back at the analyst's office. He's crying, he's sweating, he's really upset. And the analyst goes, what happened? And he says, well, my next door neighbor got chickens. He says, I'm terrified they're going to eat me. And the guy says, well, why are you scared they're going to eat you? You know you're not seed. You know you're a human being. And he says, I know that, but do the chickens know that? Right? <laughs> so in psychoanalysis, it's not convincing the person, it's convincing the chickens, right? So I cannot believe, but as long as the advertisers believe, so here's a good example, sorry, is that, right, we all know placebo, right? So placebo works, I go into a chemist and I see two types of painkiller. One is the home brand that's cheap. One's the really fancy one that's been advertised. And placebo is whenever they're both exactly the same, but the one that's been advertised and is expensive mm -hmm. works better, right? Yes. But here's what here's the next level, which is really fascinating, is if I know that, right? I go into the uh, the the chemist and I know they're both the same. The more expensive one still works better, right? Because it's not my belief; it's the advertiser's belief. My belief is in the advertisers, so it still has the placebo effect even though I know that it's no better than the other thing. Oh. So, so the other has to die. This, by the way, is what interests me about Christianity is, is it's not that you stop believing in God, it's God stops believing in God, right? So it's not that I'm separate from God. This is Jesus on the cross. Oh, Jesus on the cross, yes. It's God experiences the death of God. So Hegel takes this as an analogy for, it's not just that I am separated. Reality itself is separated. And when I encounter that reality itself is separated, I then experience the separation myself. So what, what, what's so important about that structure is that, again, it's like I can think that, you know, I, you know, things aren't working out for me, but I have a counterfactual world where it is working out and, and it, has to, it has to feel there. So I maybe kind of have gone into nihilism in the actual world, but I haven't gone into nihilism in the counterfactual world. And that's what pessimism is in a sense. It's you're not pessimistic enough. That's what whenever earlier I said, you're not pessimistic enough. It's because you're pessimistic in this world. Mm -hmm. You're not pessimistic in your alternative worlds where right. you're sad because you're thinking, I could have been with that girl and it would have been amazing. Go, no, it wouldn't have been. It might've been better than your other life, but you're still have problems, you'd still have issues. And then you go, oh, I'm pessimistic in every possible world. 
now I'm not pessimistic anymore. Now Ooh. I can live. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, in math when, you know, two negatives make a positive. And that, that's kind of what you're talking about here. The the coffee without milk, which, by the way, do we have any more coffee in Alabama? I'll take some without cream. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's fascinating because my wife and I, we, we have... You know, I have a stepdaughter and she's she's eight and I just refer to her as my daughter. But that complication between us, because there's a third party involved with her biological father, has created all kinds of um, complications in our life. And so we both mourn that while also like wishing it wasn't. Hmm. And, you know, it's we we're both in the same, we end up at the same sort of utilitarian place, but her fantasy is different from my fantasy, even though we're in, we end up in the same place, yes. which is quite joyous and beautiful. And yet, because we want different things that could never happen. Yes. It, it creates a, a misery whenever we aren't pessimistic enough about, oh, that, that thing would complete me. That thing, it wouldn't even be complete me. I know better than that, but it's like, oh, that thing would make me, make my life better. Yes. Yeah. And, and we, you know, the Buddhists talk about this all the time, but the, the, the betterment is sort of the problem, right? The, the attempting to constantly, that's why these prescriptions are all nonsense at the end of the day, because they, they, they make us think that if I just do these these six things. I mean, literally, it's practice deep breathing and, and exhale stress, limit exposure to the news. Yes, I agree with yeah, these and things. Some of these can be very useful. Like, yeah, we're not disparaging some, you know, some little bits of useful advice, but yes, right. however. <laughs> however, yeah. what happens here is you will naturally limit yourself to the news when you notice how absurd it is anyway and how it's meant to simply aggregate your eyeballs on the products and services that are also making you miserable. And so yes. once you, once the sort of the curtain comes down and you see behind it, you realize the facade of what it is, you don't need to limit your exposure to news. You don't, you're no longer drawn to it. Well, you see, because it's not the problem, it's the solution to your problem. So in the Freudian ideas that say alcoholism it's not the problem, it's the solution to your problem. And if you if you treat alcoholism as the problem, then you get rid of the alcoholism and then the person will start CrossFit or something even worse, right? Or, or Diet Coke. <laughs> it's ter- I've seen this in LA, yeah. So one day they're drinking too much whiskey, the next they're flipping tires. Terrifying, right? Um, so what you do is you then, you displace onto something else. However, if you deal with the problem to which alcoholism is the solution to the problem, then you don't have to deal with the alcoholism directly at all. It will dissipate as you, you know, as you deal with the real issue, which might be uh, a, a relationship that's terrible, bad, bad family background, uh, underemployment in your work, whatever it is, when you deal with the problem, the solution to the problem, which, by the way, of course, becomes its own problem, but it's a it's a secondary problem that mm-hmm. that So, in the same way, if I meet someone who's obsessed with doom scrolling, my question isn't. I don't like go like don't doom scroll. I go like, what is that the solution to? Right, that because that is a solution to a problem. Like there is something going on in your life, and the solution to the problem is doom scrolling. What are you getting out of it? Is what yeah, the, what are you the getting out of it? You, you mentioned yeah, earlier exactly. What what is it covering over? And 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 we all need that to some extent. But we all that that's the question. Is you you start to go, what is the problem that this is solving? Yeah, and once you work that out, you'll stop doom scrolling. Right, because you you develop this deeper understanding of what the actual problem is. You know, and we're in a culture now that is obsessed with quick fixes, right? Yeah. And 
occasionally these things will be helpful temporarily, yes, right? Yes. But they lead to long-term pain, suffering, discontent, misery, yes. um, uh, dis-ease yes. in a way. And so... Yeah, and the word, by the way, and then, and then you get into therapeutics. So there's two, two bad solutions. One is being fully in the world. And what I mean by that is there's, there's some therapeutic approaches I think of it, is where they want to make you more productive, more optimized, more able to work and more able to integrate into society. Um, and then there's, there's times where there's people who want to completely divorce from society, completely set up their alternative community and do that. Mm -hmm. the, the real challenge is how to be in the world, but not of it. To be yes. productively uh, maladapted to the world. So uh, to be productively maladapted to the world is to, to not quite fit in and to enjoy not quite fitting in and to enjoy the, 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 what rises from your maladaption to the world. So I'm always nervous about anything that tries to adapt people too tightly to their world or, or to get to divorce completely from the world. Um, it, technically, perversion is adaptation to the world and psychosis is completely out of the world. And neurosis is a type of uh, productive maladaption to the world. So it's how do we all become slightly, enjoy our neurotics? How do, how do, we, how do we enjoy neurosis? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, what's so interesting about, about that is as we adapt, what we're really doing is seeking comfort in a way and, and trying to make our life eminently comfortable. But the more we do that, the more discomfort we experience yes. as well, because then you start, there's this, um, um, uh, what did we, what did we call it on a recent private podcast about, was it significant spirals? It was, um, um, I'm blanking on it, but, um, there is this, um, um, thought or thought experiment, um, called the Diderot effect. I'm, I don't know if you've heard of it, so. but basically if you, if you buy yeah. So let's, let's say you, you have a, a house with a bunch of old furniture in it. Right. And you, ah, uh, you know, it's time for me to get a new couch. I'm going to upgrade my couch. And as soon as you do that, now everything else has become less significant, less attractive. And you, you now need to replace the coffee table. You need to replace the drapes you need to replace. And, and so the more comfortable we make ourselves, mm. the less, the more difficult it is to deal with discomfort. Yes. We bubble wrap our worlds until, um, well, until we can't do anything. Yeah. That's, we're, yeah. We're sort of paralyzed by it. That's it. I mean, and that's, that's a, so there's an obsessive symptom, um, an obsessive symptom. You can tell obsessives, you know, from fun number of factors, but one of them sometimes is that they want to really control their environment. So they want to like, you know, everything in its place. So you're collecting magazines or whatever, and you want every single one. You're and, describing me and you, by the yes, way. Yes, I know. I know I have obsessive <laughs> tendencies uh, and yourself, uh, definitely. Um, and it's like, uh, once, once you get that last magazine and you fill the gap in the magazine, the, the, the trauma is you realize that the gap is not in the magazines, it's in yourself, right? So, oh. it, so obsessive are often controlling an environment. That's what there's this, I think I read this once, the Japanese have this really interesting thing, which me and you should practice, which is, uh, and I like this, is you have one thing that's out of place. Something is, so you have a very ordered environment, but something that is, is disjunctured, out uh -huh. of place, as a type of reminder of that, that there is a type of disjunction within ourselves. So yeah, yes. yeah. this is the humanity in my space, yes. a representation of the humanity in my space. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk to you about wisdom for a bit because 
there, there are various types of wisdom. Uh, you, we see a particular wisdom in, in children, young children in particular. That's not uh, the wisdom of experience necessarily, mm-hmm. which might be a, a different kind of wisdom. And it's almost as though you know, we, we seek perfection when we are adults. If I can just perfect those magazines, if I can buy all the right furniture, the average American house has 300,000 items in it. We're just a dozen away from perfection, yes. right? And so we work to perfect ourselves, but we never try to perfect an infant. We had an infant in here yesterday, Beulah, the artist who handles all of our artwork and interior design here. Uh, she has a brand new baby son and, and, no one would go to Beulah and say, hey, um, here are the 10 tips to perfect your child. Mm. You seem like an insane person. Yes, yes. And yet we have it here in psychology today. Yeah. You have big, be, somewhere along the way, you've become imperfected yes. uh, by society, by your programming, by your peer group, by your culture, by your religion. You've become imperfected. And now here's the cure, the solution, whatever it might be. And yet there's a wisdom in children where none of that is necessary. It seems so obsolete that if you would have went to my daughter when she was three and tried to show her how to perfect herself, she would have just kind of blinked at you and, yeah. and, and said, what, what is he even talking about? Yeah. Right. So there's that kind of wisdom. And then there's the wisdom of sort of transcending the programming through experience. Can we talk about different types of wisdom here? Yeah. I mean, this is where, um, so <laughs> the, uh, this is where, like, we've talked about this before a little tiny bit uh, when I was, we were talking about determinism and freedom. And I was kind of like, I think, talking a little bit about, about the philosophical notion of freedom, what it is. One of the ways to understand it is, like, if we lived, imagine we lived in a, you know, purely deterministic environment, like also a pagan world of pure repetition. So everything has cycles and all that, which is what we think. Most people think that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to give an alternative in a second, but... Um, the, one of the things that Marquis de Sade wrote about is Marquis de Sade wrote these he was these crazy books where we get the word sadism from, and he wrote a book called Juliet, where um, the Pope in Juliet is basically saying that torture and destruction and death is natural, right? As you see it in nature, right? But then he says, I bemoan the fact that I can't do a crime against nature herself, right? I can do crimes within nature, but I can't do a crime against nature herself because nothing is destroyed or created in nature. Everything is repetitive. No matter how much destruction I wreak in the world, nature, the cosmos just goes on in this kind of pagan repetitive way. And uh, the response of uh, the philosopher Shizak is very interesting where he says, well, the, the thing that Desaad didn't realize is that you you can't sin against nature in, in Desaad's worldview. It's like, no, every, every individual is a sin against nature. Every subjectivity is a type of rupturing in the chain of cause and effect. And what he means by that is like every individual is the rupture of a new possibility, a new contingency, a new, a new, throw of the dice, as Mallarmé would say, the poet. And what that means is, um, in psychoanalytic terms, like we are all, we are the disturbance of the universe. We are the disruption and the discordance of reality with itself. We are the symptom of the t- what uh, Sapanchek says, we are the ticks and grimaces of the world. We are, the universe has created a terrible perversion which is wonderful. And that's us. We're all nuts. We're a bit crazy. We're a bit, And if we could be fully molded into this kind of like 
itchy and of cause and effect, we would just be the most boring type of animal. Like we, we would yeah. be, um, so all of this to say that there's a certain sense in which we are, we can never be domesticated. We can never be kind of fully put into some sort of non-anxious, uh, non-disruptive, non-distorted kind of type of reality. And the more we try it, the more weird it is. So being normal is its own distortion, right? The more right. normal you are. And so in psychoanalysis, it's almost like, how do you enjoy your weirdness? How do you enjoy your, your not fitting in? I don't know if any of that makes sense. We want to it jump does. in on that. We, we, we seek order because we... Again, we've moralized everything. Order, good, chaos, bad. Yeah. Right? Uh, normal, good, abnormal, bad, mm -hmm. right? It's fun. I love twisting these words and, and finding the other side of it. Yes. it. In any word, I think, Danny, you and I were talking the other day about you know, dirt. Like, we will, if we dislike someone, say, oh, that's dirty. Yeah. What else is dirty? Dirt is dirty, yes. right? And the thing from which everything grows that gives us life is dirty. And dirt is just misplaced matter. And then the, the dirt just defines misplaced matter. In other words, like something that's out of place. Yeah. So can I give an example? It's actually, I was on this podcast, hilarious. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who it was. Maybe I will. <laughs> I can't uh. even remember his name, but it's a very conservative guy, like this fundamentalist pastor. And uh -huh. I was invited onto his podcast a few weeks ago. Okay. And uh, it was really fun and kind of nuts and crazy. But he did a, a, a fast round with me at one stage and he started asking me these questions and most of what I did on the podcast I'm not I don't think I was very good or whatever but there was one question I was glad I responded this, this way so I'm going to give you the good one not the bad ones uh, he <laughs> asked he said um, you know is is uh, homosexuality a homosexual se uh, sex uh, uh, what did he call it abnormal and that was the question right and so my response was well all sex is abnormal right that's the point is like so it's now, he was wanting either there's normal sex and abnormal sex. Or I'm like, no, all sex is abnormal. That's mm -hmm. what's wonderful about it. In fact, the weird thing is human beings can't have sex. This is the, this is the psychoanalytic insight, which is animals can have They mate. We don't even call it sex. Animals mate. Uh, I have video evidence that will prove you wrong, that, by the way. <laughs> yes, I've never seen that. <laughs> if you see the way I do it, you can't do it, though. But, is that, but human beings need fantasy to have sex. That's the funny thing is human yes. beings need... They, so the Freudian question was never, oh, oh, we're always thinking about sex when we're doing other things, right? So that's what people think, oh, Freud's like, whenever you're writing a great book, there's a sublimated sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. But Freud's fundamental question was, what are you thinking about when you're having sex? In other mm -hmm. words, you can't just have sex without fantasy, without candles or chains or freaking romantic music or whatever it is you're into. Like, that fantasy... I'm getting turned on. You know. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so fantasy is required in, as a supplement to sex, to sex of, of some kind. And even when you're just having sex, you're you're creating a certain phantasmic dimension, right? So all yes. of that to say ecstasy. is ecstasy, yeah. And 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 like and you're you're creating, you know, even role playing or whatever it is that you're having to supplement pure sexual act. In fact, the trauma of sex without fantasy, I mean, that's where you get into sexual abuse, is basically sex without fantasy, right? Sex which mm. has been robbed of its phantasmic support. Um, so uh, sex requires a type of phantasmic support. And that's abnormal. That's weird, right? Natural yeah. sex would be when you would just go up to somebody and say, would you like to have sex with me? You go, yes. And then you go into this booth. Or like, it's like some sort of like dystopic kind of sci-fi thing or that right. Woody Allen movie. It's like, that would be normal. 
But the thing about sex is sexuality is inherently distorting and abnormal, which is what makes it fun and enjoyable, right? Um, you must anyway. have pissed this guy off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he was a bit frustrated with me. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the funny thing is, you know, with uh, someone who's a that type of conservative fundamentalist, they would, because you identify as a Christian, yep. but they would say you're not a Christian or that you're heretical in, in, in some respect. Yeah. But, and, and you would say, yes, I'm, yeah. I'm a heretic. Yes. <laughs> um, so what? Yeah. And what's fascinating is, is you have a deeper understanding of religion and Christianity than most Christians have. So can we talk a bit about um, how you've, you've broken out of that that mold of, of a, cause there was a period of time in your life where you were much more, um, uh, fundamental oh, yeah. and, and now you, um, now you have a better understanding it <laughs> seems. Yeah. So I did, I did go through when I was young, um, you know, this experience of confessional Christianity and that, and that was very, actually a very powerful and profound experience for me. Um, but the funny thing is, so what I mean by when I talk about Christianity, so I'm a Hegelian, um, guy for Hegel, philosopher Hegel. Um, when I talk about Christianity, what I mean is um, the the existential experience of the non-at-oneness and incompleteness of reality itself. That's what I mean. So whenever someone, so Christianity for me is the recognition that you can never be whole, happy, or complete. That you are, that that the universe is fundamentally divided. Now, as first of all, people go like, what? Well, like, that doesn't sound like Christianity. Right. Um, but, but philosophically, I can make the argument that I... So, for example, do you want to hear in a nutshell? All right, I, no, I think I've done it before in the podcast. So I don't want to repeat myself, you know. Um, but I will say this is that, you know what we talked about earlier, that it's not enough that I stop believing in uh, wholeness and completeness. It's like it has to, the belief has to also... Um, the system has to stop believing, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't believe in Santa Claus anymore, but the child believes in Santa Claus. So I get all the enjoyment of the belief as long as the child believes. And by the way, most children, they get to a point where they don't believe either, but they pretend to believe because they see how much enjoyment it gives to the parents. So yes. everybody is lying. Nobody actually believes, but the structure <laughs> continues to go on because of it, right? Um, <laughs> there's a story I think captures this very quickly, but this, um, uh, during the troubles in Northern Ireland, um, the soldiers would, would come to Northern Ireland, uh, British soldiers, right? And they would they do a tour of duty there. Yeah, and which the, is where you grew up. Yeah, That's yeah. not a valley accent. That's right, exactly. Yeah, I just put this on. I'm really from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so during the Troubles, these, these army, they would come in and they'd be sent to all these tiny towns in the middle of nowhere. And so anyway, this, this unit is posted in this place, um, say, um, Ballycarry. And... The sergeant says, right, there's not much to do here, but it's Ireland, there's pubs in every corner. So let's go to the pub, we'll have a few drinks. So right. you go to the pub and the sergeant says to the soldiers, listen, I'll show you a wee trick you can play on the Isle Irish, right? And he brings out um, a five pound note and he crumples it up, dirties it up and he puts it on the table. So it's all ripped and dirty. And he takes out a one pound coin and he sh shines it real good. So it was really shiny. And he puts it on the table and he sees this guy at the bar. He says, what's your name? He says, Seamus. He says, Seamus, come here, come here. Seamus comes over, he's been drinking. And the, the sergeant says, well, Seamus, would you rather have this old crumpled dirty note or this bright, shiny coin? Seamus is like taken by the coin and he bites it in his one good tooth and he says, I'll take the coin, I'll take the coin, right? So it's brilliant. So they do this and they keep playing it with other guys in the bar, see if they'll fall for it. 
And eventually the soldiers leave and there's this American girl there and she's like, guys, do you not realize the five pound note is worth five times more than the pound coin? And Seamus turns to her and said, of course we do. But if we took the five pound note, they'd stop playing the game, right? <laughs> now, the thing, you know, we're not as dumb as we look, right? The Irish are. Um, now, the thing I like about that is nobody believes in the game, but the game continues to function, right? No one believes in it, but it functions. So mm-hmm. you can have, and this is, uh, without getting too um, controversial, but there are structures uh, within society where no one actually believes the thing, but because nobody says it, everyone continues to act. So behind closed doors, they may have questions about certain things, but as long as it's not said, the belief continues to function without people believing. Mm -hmm. So what has to happen is the, the, the lack of belief has to happen at a higher level. And that's connected to Christianity in so much as one of the unique things about the Christian narrative is, is that God is self divided. Like that's a new concept. That was a very profound concept, which actually took a lot of time, a lot of philosophy to work out is it this idea that it's not that I'm separated from God, it's God is separated from God, which means there's a quantum dimension to reality itself, that that reality is not one and not two, but a not one. And if reality is a not one, then reality is a three, right? There is the the the, the two parts of the not one and the, 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 and the rupture itself, which is three. So it's a reality is fundamentally not at one with itself. Now, this is before... The so Hegel came to this before the advent of modern physics and before uh, around the time of uh, Darwin and all of that. But this notion of the of the rupture or antagonism within reality itself, um, uh, I would say, is a fundamental insight into the nature of reality. And what I'm trying to do in my work is I create a technology that helps people existentially experience the fundamental contradiction that they are so that oh. they can be freed from happiness. <laughs> that's my work, yeah. yeah. But I don't think cr- confessional Christianity has got there. Yeah, that's why it's called radical Christianity, yeah. Well, what's fascinating about the uh, the term you just used, the, the mm-hmm. freedom from happiness, we were talking about this briefly before we started recording. You say it much more succinctly than I do, but the search for happiness, the pursuit mm-hmm. of happiness, which is, in the founding documents of America, Mm -hmm. right? The pursuit of happiness is the path to misery for us. And we don't realize that. And so it's more succinctly, happiness is making us unhappy. I mean, you could be a literalist with it. One of the, you could be a literalist and said, so what does it say? The pursuit of happiness, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you're a literalist about that, it's not saying happiness is like the pursuit. Like the pursuit is where the enjoyment is. If you realize that it's actually, so whenever, so if I have meaning from cooking, cookery and I want to be the best cook that I can be, the best chef I can be. I am always driven by the fact that I'm not as good as I could be. But if I directly enjoy that and I directly enjoy getting better to setting up a restaurant kind of, so I'm, I'm kind of, but I, but I, I basically, all I do is I change my perception. So the happiness isn't at the end of the road when I get there, but the happiness is the road itself then you could say that, um, that, yeah, the pursuit of happiness, but never happiness. It's just, it's, it's always the failure is where the enjoyment is. <laughs> yeah. It, well, and it's because the happiness exists already. Yeah. That, and, and, and therefore the, the pursuit is almost a byproduct of, uh, because we often are running, we're not even pursuing happiness. We're running away from misery, running away from suffering, running away from, yeah. from despair or whatever it might be thinking we can, consume happiness. We can grasp yes. happiness. And by the way, and like you mentioned there, which is very key, is 
that there's something terrifying about pleasure and enjoyment. And so, so much so that we hide our own enjoyment from ourselves. So, so for example, some couples mm. will fight all the time, right? And what, what you can begin to see this is, is that, that um, in order for them to keep their desire going, they need to argue. So it's, it's not that a hysteric, so hysterics are all, so obsessive of, often desire what they can't have and hysterics often desire what's under threat of being taken away, right? Ah. So you get a hysteric and an obsessive together. It's very interesting. So an hysteric, an hysteric is not jealous because they love. They love because they're jealous, right? So the jealousy is what sustains the love and the obsessive um, doesn't desire what they can't have. It's that they can't have it is what sustains their desire, right? So the worst thing for the obsessive is they get what they can't have because now they get what they desire but no longer desire what they desire. Uh -huh. And the worst thing for an hysteric is that there's nobody to threaten to take away the other. There's no threat um, because and because when the threat goes away, so does the desire for the other. But the funny thing is for many of us, we don't realize that. So we think that impossibility or threat are the very things that we don't like they're the very things that we do like, but we don't know that we know it. So we don't enjoy our enjoyment. So the trick is in realizing that to integrate it in a healthy way. So it's not to, so, so the, 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 the cure for the obsessive is not to get rid of impossibility, but to go, how can I make impossibility part of the relationship? How can I live half the time with my partner, half the time without my partner, for example, or whatever. Yeah. The, the role of the hysteric is how, you know, how can I have a healthy form of kind of like under threat, this thing is threatened, you know, where, where I've got, you know, other things that I'm doing, they've got other things. And in other words, how do we enjoy our enjoyment? So a lot of the time is we're actually enjoying ourselves, but we're terrified of our enjoyment. I mean, it sounds weird said at first, but it's like, we're scared of what we enjoy. Mm -hmm. And, and part of, part of the healing process is to see how we enjoy. Oh, I do like people who are unhealthy for me. Okay. How can I acknowledge that and then find a healthier way to to have unhealthy people you know does that yeah so anyway that yeah but that's uh it's so interesting because um yes it is quite often the the time apart and the narrative i'll tell myself early on was like this time apart is making me miserable yeah yeah but you're really <laughs> but the truth is that this time apart is what is actually bringing mm. me the joy and i can even enjoy this yearning, whatever you might call it, right? That the arises a natural naturally. I don't have to do anything to accomplish it. Yes. It merely arises within me. So it, yeah, so it's it's a it's a weird thing where you start to try to enjoy your enjoyment. So it, within consumerism, there's a belief that there's a fantasy of the sacrifice of sacrifice. So there's a fantasy that one day I'll be able to retire. I'll get the house I want, live by the beach. Everything will be great. So that's the sacrifice of sacrifice, i.e. no longer am I sacrificing. Now I have what I want. But the problem with that is if sacrifice is inherent to enjoyment, getting the retirement, you're, gonna, you're probably going to have a heart attack in six months time because you're kind of like, you, it's a sacrifice that makes things enjoyable. However, the problem in our society is we, some people sacrifice and other people get the enjoy, the, the pleasure of that sacrifice. So yeah. people sacrifice and they don't get the, the product of that sacrifice. So the healthy thing is how do I sacrifice in my community in terms of my work or whatever, in such a way that the people I love and care about benefit from that sacrifice. So the, so it, it almost is, it's, it's realizing that it's not about getting rid of sacrifice, but it's also not about sacrificing in such a way that we give ourselves completely just like in LA, this city runs 
on people with a bit of money coming here, spending it all in a year trying to become famous or whatever, and then leaving, right? That's how the people who are rich <laughs> is, is this, this just sucks all of that in, takes all of people's money and, and, and hope, and then kicks them out, right? Um, so there's all this sacrifice, but not but only some people benefit from the sacrifice. And the question is, how do we sacrifice and in, and get the enjoyment of the sacrifice? You, you're reminding me of there's a this business. It's, there's this van that drives all around L.A. It's up on Sunset. I see it parked there all the time. And it says, we will make you famous. Huh. But they don't have any testimonials of like, well, here, yes, we've made Jake Gyllenhaal famous and Ed Norton and you know, Meryl Streep. No, 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 no. It, it's not about that for them. It's it's. Um, it's preying on the sacrifice yes. of the naive, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's also promising something, this fame, that even if I do give it to you mm. in an unearned way, it's going to make you happy. Yeah. Well, A, it's not going to make you happy either way, even if you quote unquote earn it. Yeah. But especially if it is merely given to you. And I think that's one of the troubles we get into, even with with minimalism. People often ask Ryan and I, like, hey, I really need you guys to come to my house and clean up all the material possessions. Mm -hmm. I want you to organize it, tidy it up, throw it out, donate it, sell it, whatever. And well, the answer to that is no, for obvious reasons, because well, there are two reasons. The one is if I did that for you, your closet will be recluttered a month from now. Yeah. Because you don't understand the why. You didn't make the sacrifice of time and attention and the pain of of going through that yourself. But then also, you're mistaking that outcome as though that is the destination. If I could just get... It's a different type of consumerism in in a way. Uh, If I buy these 300,000 things, it'll make me happy. No, it won't. And you learn that. And then so now the next consumerist quest is, if I just get rid of these 300,000 things, it will make me happy. Well, no, that's not the case either. Yes. You don't need to... You could be happy with the 300,000 things. Yeah. It's often a bit harder because it's taking our attention all over the place and it's making us frenetic. Or you can get rid of the excess and still be utterly miserable. Yes. Because you haven't realized that this is just a different type of pursuit. Yes. It's another type of grasping in a way. Absolutely. You could talk about religions of nihilism and religions of hedonism. Religions of hedonism promise that they can satisfy your desire and religions of nihilism promise they can get rid of your desire. So you can see this. (laughs) And by the way, the weirdest thing is that in contemporary society, I see this a lot in Los Angeles, is people who have linked the two. So what they do is they, they go on a retreat which is where they kind of get rid of their desire and they meditate and they take MDMA or whatever and they experience this this lack of frenetic pursuit of fullness so that they can go back into their everyday life and give themselves with fresh, uh, a fr- you know, they're refreshed so that they can be in the frenetic pursuit of consumerism. So what you do is, it, it's the gas release valve. I've got my once a month, I do my little retreat and that mm. disconnects me precisely so that I can kind of pursue fame and money even better. But anyway, so you've got religions of nihilism, religions of hedonism. But what I'm interested in, what could be called a religion of the absurd. Um, and the absurd is a really interesting. So absurdity, um, you know, Camus very interested. He do- he talks about the absurd. Yeah. But in a Freudian way, you can think about it like this. So the pleasure principle 
is where we want things. I want to win all the games that I play. I want to climb trees and I want to eat whatever I want, right? So a child, that's, that's the pleasure principle. Mm-hmm. And then the reality principle is saying that you can't win all the games, right? Other people want to win them. You can't eat anything you want because you'll get sick and you can't climb all the trees you want because you, your body doesn't let you, you're not strong enough. So that's the reality principle. And what we think is we often think that if we got rid of the reality principle, it would be wonderful because then we'd have pure pleasure without the reality principle. Mm. But actually, it's the reality principle that makes the pleasure principle pleasurable. It's precisely, if you got everything you wanted straight away, you would no longer desire what you desire. So actually, weirdly, there's a combination of reality principle and pleasure principle that generates desire. And that's the absurd. So an embrace of the absurd is kind of in a way, escaping from this attempt to find the answer, which, but which, which I think is a minimalist philosophy because it, it breaks you from the libidinal desire to either find something, which then when it doesn't work, leads you to think I have to get rid of my desire. That's how it functions rather than how do I desire my desire? Yes. Um, so, yeah. 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 The, be, be, and it's hard to even grasp that, right? Because especially with our programming, it has become very mechanical. Mm -hmm. If I get this, you know, and you can bring it down to the fundament. If I eat some food, it satisfies me temporarily. Not permanently, because then the the desire comes back in a way. And yet we seek a permanence if I buy the right thing or if I have the right relationship, if I embark on the right career, if I if I write the book that I want to write, these things are going to complete me. Mm-hmm. And it completely strips the the happiness or joy, whatever you want to call it, from the process, uh, from the pursuit in yes, a way. Yes. When writing the book becomes the point, you may not even enjoy that that the creation process. Yeah. And I can see it with what you've created here. I mean, you're always advancing and developing your studio, getting better equipment even earlier there. You said, oh, it'd be good to get something so that I can see the questions in the world, right? There's a certain sense which you're never going to get this perfect, right? right? But you're enjoying the process. You enjoy the process itself. And that creates something productive. So you've created something really beautiful uh, and you can enjoy that. But 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 it, you never get there. So in my work, I am developing something called parotheology. What is parotheology? It's nothing. It's just a word, right? But yeah. but every time I try to define what it is, I go like, oh, I didn't do it well enough. I should write another book. I should do another course. So, so yes. every attempt is a failure. But one, the failure is generative. So it generates the concept. And uh-huh. two, I enjoy it because that's where my enjoyment is. So not only is my failure to define parotheology enjoyable to me, it also is generative of something that, you know, parotheology becomes a thing precisely through my repetitive failures to describe it. Yes. And there's a, an absence of clinging in that, yeah. in a way where you're not clinging to, well, yes, I've picked out the perfect 17 word definition mm-hmm. and it's perfectly tweetable. And now, now it's settled and I'm clinging to that. It's the same with the studio space. I could walk away from this place today. I'd feel a little pang of, of, of loss, but it's not that big of a deal. I'm not clinging to any of it. And there was a time where I clung to things that I thought were so 
precious, but in retrospect, it was so absurd, yeah. that clinging, because not only did it make me miserable, but it was almost a pursuit of suffering. Yes. Like I was trying to make myself miserable. Yeah, well, that, that's very key. Like you'll notice sometimes you'll get an actor who's got everything who then shoplifts and you go, why are they shoplifting? Or <laughs> who writes some crazy tweet, you go, why did they do it? And you go, oh yeah, because unconsciously, um, there's a certain sense in which we have to, in order to enjoy things, we have to have lack or we have to have a problem. And if you can't do it consciously in a healthy way, you're going to find unhealthy ways to do it. So people yeah. will self-sabotage weirdly so as to maintain desire, so as they can keep going. So you, you see it where it's like, if you don't find a healthy way in a relationship to bring lack and struggle, it will come out in the most unhealthy ways, but it has to, it has to come out because we we want desire more than anything. We get bored otherwise. That's why the only way to really desire something is if, as I say, you're if you if you're an actor and you've got everything you want, then you have to fantasize it being stolen away, right? So then you'll start thinking, oh, will I be cancelled or will I not get the next part or whatever? It's like in order to enjoy, you have to fantasize the removal or, you know, you fantasize getting what you don't have, but we have to find all of these ways to bring lack or nothing, the nil into reality in order to keep things going. The problem is when we do it unconsciously and unhealthily rather yes. than healthily. Yeah. And, or we also pull the, the past forward in a way that is also unhealthy, right? Wanting to change, because you can want to change the future. That's a fantasy, mm -hmm. right? But having a fantasy about changing the past is is a type of clinging. Yeah. Can you make a distinction between the two? Yeah. And the beautiful thing is, which is the positive way of, the, of changing the past is thankfully we can to some extent. Like sometimes when you, mm. in good and bad ways, like sometimes when you fall out of love, often then you look back and you go, I don't think I ever loved them. Like there was an argument, I can't remember the philosopher who argued that he argued for that for divorce because divorce is not possible. Like if ever you get divorced, you are never married because as soon as you fall out of love with someone, it's like you never love them, right? You know, and if you still if you still look back and say I love them, you probably still do love them. Mm -hmm. Like there's that moment in a relationship where you're so just like split that you look at the past and you've changed the past. You're like I just don't think I was ever authentic, right? But but yeah. you've kind of changed the past. And in a good way, you could be so depressed and have had 15 years of loneliness. And a lot of people are lonely at the moment and everything's pretty sad and depressed. And then you meet somebody and then the past becomes the waiting for that. It becomes the Old Testament prophet, prophecy of the, uh. the meeting. So it's it's beautiful. Like if, your past is never wasted, you know, and which is beautiful. But, um, oh, anyway, that was just an aside. I can't remember where we're talking about. Um, no, I, I, I like this. Let's, no, let's go on a little bit more here. So, so there's also the other side of that where we, nostalgia tweezes forward only the quote unquote good or pleasurable parts of, of a relationship. And you yearn for only the, the good from the relationship and you forget about the, the all, all of the toxic, negative suffering that occurred in the relationship. And and so that's a different type of changing the past. And even when you know it, so I had a really good friend who got a divorce and he was pining for the relationship after the divorce, but he knew it was a terrible relationship. So when I talked to him about it, he was like, well, like, I just want it. I want her back. I want it. And I go like, but you remember how terrible it was? He says, yep. He says, I know, but I still want it back. And it was because 
there was some nostalgia for something that didn't exist, a nostalgia for this 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 uh, something that really really wasn't there. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I, I was going to say something else, but I forget. Um, oh, sorry. Right, let's yeah. turn over to the the live stream, patrons. What uh, what questions do you have for us? Yuri asks regarding the phrase "on a long enough timeline, none of this matters." What leads you to perceive this statement as a good thing? And not something that would lead people down a destructive road. Ah, uh, yes, there is that meme where someone says nothing matters and they're depressed, and then the next picture is someone saying nothing matters and they're really happy. <laughs> you know, uh, that 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 idea of over long enough time scale, nothing matters, can either be devastatingly depressing or joyfully giving. That's quite yeah, freeing in yeah. a way. Yeah, and, and so it's not that nothing matters per se; it's that there is not an inherent meaning. And that's the problem because it pigeonholes us into, oh, I was born to be an astronaut or a philosopher or a filmmaker or whatever. And and now you feel as though that's the thing you must do. You must find meaning in it, even though you don't enjoy it. It doesn't particularly matter to you. Yeah. There's some story you've told yourself. Now, for some athletes, it could be because their father from age one was teaching them how to dribble a basketball. And even though they don't particularly care for it, they feel as though it's supposed to matter to them. Yeah. And so there isn't an inherent meaning in that. But there are other people who find you know, playing basketball you know, like the most meaningful pursuit in their life. And I think what we're really talking about is differentiating here. I think it was Yuri. Was that the person asking? Okay. So what Yuri's asking is, I'm afraid I'm going to go into the spiral of nothing matters. How could that possibly be a, a good thing? Well, we're not saying it's good or bad. Yeah. That's, to, that's to moralize it, right? Yeah. It could be incredibly freeing or it could be so limiting as well. Yeah. No, absolutely. And there's a beautiful, like, I was, we were talking about this in the podcast recently, The Fundamentalist, but that, so there's an idea that we have of the universe that, and there's an old parable, you'll know it, where, the, you know, there's an elephant and there are these six, five blind men, I think, touching the elephant at different parts. One is the leg and they say, oh, this, this is like a trunk. This is a tree. The other, the tail, oh, it's a snake. The other is a tusk and it's like, oh, it's a spear or whatever. Um, so the idea is that we are looking at the universe all from our different perspectives. We never have a full perspective of the universe, but which is a Kantian view. But Hegel's view, which I think is much more interesting, is it's not that we are like the blind men encountering the elephant. The elephant is encountering itself through these manifestations of the blind men, right? So it's not that I'm looking at the universe. I am the universe looking at itself, right? I am yes. the universe hearing itself. I am. So even when I so it's not that I look at the universe and go, oh, it's all meaningful or meaningless. It's, it's like, I am the universe asking what is meaningful, which is quite beautiful, Oof. which means like you, every human being is incredible. Like we are like, let's, let's imagine all the movements, the big movements, being out of nothingness, life out of being, consciousness out of life, self-consciousness out of consciousness and reason out of self-consciousness. So they, they're five biggies, right? Big things that are happening in the universe. Mm -hmm. We are the rationality and the self-consciousness of the universe encountering itself. We are, even for a brief moment, we are the universe encountering itself. And we get to participate in that. We get to be that. We get to be this, the part of this incredible kind of like antagonism of the universe coming to know itself. It's quite beautiful. That is... Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. It, and said, uh, taken out of context, it might sound like an incredible amount of hubris. I am the universe <laughs> viewing itself yeah. or uh, finding meaning in itself, looking for meaning in itself. But um, it's, uh, I don't know, it's... But by the way, this is the way of can open it. It brings me back to the Terrence Malick thing, right? Like th- what you're describing there is sort of them capturing the universe seeing itself. That's exactly, that's that's what Marcel means by problem mystery is that, that weirdly, that we can treat lots of things as problems, but when you take reality itself, it's a mystery. We are encountering ourselves in the problem that we're seeing. And, which by the way, is it connects to psychoanalysis because that can sound very woo-woo. But in psychoanalysis, it's the same thing. It's like, when I look at you, there's, I'm looking at you and whatever, but I'm also projecting stuff onto you. Like I can tell a lot about myself. And when I look at who I like and who I don't like, who makes me angry or whatever, that, that I realize that it's never that I'm just encountering the world. I'm also encountering my own unseen face whenever I encounter the world. And it's not one or the other. It's this incredible mix of I encounter you and I encounter parts of myself. And, and this again, coming back to Hegelian Christianity, is this idea is that whenever I experience doubt or unknowing, um, that expression is an expression of the universe itself. So doubt and unknowing is part of the universe itself. So it's not that I don't know. Um, it, can I tell you a story? Can I, of course. Um, I don't know if I, I don't think I told you this before, but about this guy, Seamus, stop me if I have, but okay. who, um, he loses everything, loses his job, loses his, like uh, all his money. And he's like, oh, what am I going to do? Now he's a very pious man. So he prays, praise to God, God, if you can hear me, uh, I'm broke. Can you just help me? And he hears a voice from God. God says, Seamus, sell everything you've got, get the money and go to Vegas. So Seamus sells everything. He's a very pious man. Sells everything and goes to Vegas. He looks up to heaven and says, God, what do you want me to do? I'm here. And God says, go into the first casino. And it says, play one hand of poker. So Seamus does. Goes in, gets dealt seven, two off. He's like, seven, two off. I'm going to have to fold. Here's a voice from heaven saying, Seamus, you go all in. Like, seven, two off? Like, no, go all in. So Seamus pushes all his money in. Two more people see him. He's like, I'm so going to lose. But on the flop, the turn, he hits another seven, another two twos, gets a full house, he wins. He goes, I don't believe it. Then he hears a voice from God saying, Seamus, you go to the roulette, or sorry, the blackjack table and play one round of blackjack. So Seamus goes, he gets dealt 17. He's about to stick. He hears a voice of God saying, hit. So I'm at 17, hit. So he hits, he gets an ace, 18. So he's about to stick. Here's God say, hit again. I'm on 18. Hits again, gets two, 1920, right? He's about to stick. God says, hit again. He's like, what? He gets his ace. He wins. He's like, I don't believe it. And then he hears a voice from God saying, right, go to the roulette table, put everything on seven. Seamus goes, he's sweating, puts it all on seven. There's a big crowd's gathered now, right? And they're all watching. And the ball rolls, rolls, bum, 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 bum. And it hits seven the crowd goes wild and Seamus looks up to heaven and says, I don't believe it. And then he hears a voice from God saying, I don't believe it either. You're the luckiest motherfucker I've ever seen. <laughs> now, you understand that story. You understand the meaning of life, right? That, that story captures the meaning. Of life. Like, we think that we don't know 
but that the and then we realize that unknowing is woven into the very fabric of reality itself. Contingency, surprise, novelty is woven into the nature of reality itself. That is the good news. Oh, that is a perfect place to end this. Hopefully you'll stick around. I want to do an Ask the Minimalist Anything session with you because we have so many more questions here from patrons and um, folks can check that out. Uh, patreon.com slash the minimalists it's for our true fans and vips we'll do uh, ask the minimalist 51 with uh, peter rollins but before we get to that let me just say well first off i want to acknowledge you and, and thank you pete you are amazing I, you're uh, obviously you're a fan favorite for a reason but every time i talk to you i feel like i learn more about myself um and uh, thanks so thank you for holding up that mirror for oh, me well thank you and thank i so love being here and being part of this so thank you for the invitation love it always we'll, love chatting we'll put a link to his podcast the fundamental fundamentalists and fund <laughs> fundamentalists i know it's a, that's a good freudian slip you always oh. in, in, in psychoanalysis you always look for not what people mean but for what they say and i think that's a great <laughs> thing because there's something about what we're doing what you're doing which is very similar there's oh. a there is a blending of the two so yeah PeterRollins.com as well for all of his courses. And please check him out and support him on Patreon if you want to dive deep with Pete. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you soon. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it